KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Art Power is presenting Indian fusion band Red Bharat, mixing Indian bhangra rhythms, hip-hop, and funk music, March 23rd at the Epstein Family Amphitheater. Tickets and information about upcoming concerts and events at artpower.ucsd.edu. The city and county of San Diego launch a new initiative to build more affordable housing. 10,000 is an aggressive goal, and it's going to be hard, but we know the need is so great. I'm Andrew Bowen with Jade Hindman. This is KPBS Midday Edition. Emergency COVID-19 tenant protections are set to expire tomorrow, leaving some to fear their housing security is in jeopardy. That's why there's a lot of hidden homelessness in our community, where like families are doubling up in one bedroom, two bedroom, because of they cannot afford to rent. A new report shows hunger in San Diego County is on the rise, and lessons from Japanese Americans in the fight for reparations for African Americans. That's ahead on KPBS Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Osher Lifelong Learning Institute, hosting an open house to learn about the upcoming classes and seminars, member benefits, and meet the volunteer leadership team. Saturday, March 30th. Registration at extendedstudies.ucsd.edu slash O-L-L-I. On Monday, for the first time in more than 20 years, the San Diego City Council and the County Board of Supervisors will hold a joint meeting. And the topic is a familiar one, affordable housing. The city and county both agree the lack of affordable housing is a crisis. And the meeting's goal is to get the two separate government bodies to better coordinate on the issue. Joining me with more are San Diego City Council President Sean Ila Rivera and County Supervisor Nathan Fletcher. Welcome to you both. Thank you, Andrew. At this meeting on Monday, you'll be setting a joint goal of building 10,000 affordable homes by 2030. How did you land on that number, and how would that compare to our current production levels? Well, 10,000 is an aggressive goal, and and it's going to be hard, uh, but we know the need is so great. And it's not just 10,000 units of affordable housing. We need more than that. This is 10,000 units of affordable housing on government-owned land, on vacant or underutilized government-owned land. And it's not just an issue of homelessness. The issue of affordable housing, there's working-class families out there, folks who get up and go to work every day who can't afford a place to to live and, and to raise their families and at the county, we've got about 1,000 units of affordable housing going on county-owned land. Uh, Council President Ilo Rivera and I both serve on MTS, uh, where we very effectively put to use MTS-owned land, about 2,000 units of housing overall moving forward. And so this is a regional goal, but this is your county government and your city government coming together to say, hey, folks expect us to work together. Uh, they want us to tackle these things. And, and I really appreciate the partnership. Uh, of Council President Ilo Rivera, of Mayor Gloria, uh, and the city and the county. And, and I'm committed to having having uh, this spirit of collaboration become institutionalized so that we never repeat the mistakes that happened before either one of us were in office in a situation like Hepe. So we're coming together, committed to building housing and really trying to move forward. Council President, anything to add? The only thing I'm, I'm going to add, Andrew, is, is you asked about how, how a goal of 10,000 homes compares to what we're doing right now. The fact is the status quo in terms of housing production has gotten good enough. And part of the reason why is that 
government is is not doing all that we can to make our land available for housing. And I think that the city and the county coming together, committing to to try to do better and do more with respect to making our government-owned land available for housing and leaning in on that front can only help in achieving the, the, the regional goal that we have of creating 100,000 new homes for San Diegans. I've heard a lot about how the city and county need to coordinate their efforts better around affordable housing, but plenty of issues. What exactly will that look like? What new coordination will be happening in order to realize this goal? Why don't we start with you, Council President? There's a lot of ways that the county and, and the city are already partnering, I think, in, in new ways. And I, I've watched as, as Chair Fletcher and Mayor Gloria have created some meaningful partnerships, especially as it relates to addressing homelessness uh, in the region. Uh, I think that's a, a, a huge shift in comparison to what we'd seen in the past. But we each own a piece of the puzzle with respect to solving some of the biggest problems that we have. And so, um, you know, the, the county was, was I think, uh, demonstrated a lot of leadership in putting forward you know, $10 million to not just the city of San Diego, but you know, throughout the region uh, to, to address homelessness. Um, we've seen the way that the city and county are leaning into creating you know, shelter options. And there's a variety of ways that the city and the county need to work together in order to most effectively and efficiently solve problems. So I think this is the beginning of, of a, the policymaking bodies coming together, putting that policy cap, uh, thinking cap on and saying, how can we collaborate to, you know, again, meet the needs of San Diegans and accomplish our goals of making this a region that is a great place to live, um, not just for those who are wealthy, but those who are um, middle uh, middle class, working class folks uh, who are working way too hard right now to, to barely, barely get by. One of the big discussion items, or really the main focus of Monday's meeting, will be this list of publicly owned properties that can be developed into affordable housing. Tell me more about that and maybe give me some examples of, of where you own this land that could be built on. Yeah, I'll give you a couple from the county. Uh, we have the old crime lab in Claremont. This is county-owned land in the city of San Diego, uh, and we're underway developing 480 units, 100% affordable. Um, and, and we're able to do that again because it's publicly owned land. You have a little more certainty around entitlement. Uh, we have uh, affordable housing projects going though throughout. We've got a, a senior focused one in Linda Vista on county owned land. We've got the old family courthouse downtown that is moving forward. And then at MTS, we've done it at MTS on land in multiple jurisdictions, uh, as Councilmember Elo Rivera mentioned. And so it's a matter of taking this model, uh, Andrew, that we know works. We know we can make it work and figure out how do we take it to scale. And this is the partnership where we bring in uh, our philanthropic community. San Diego Foundation's put up an initial $10 million investment. They want to grow that to $100 million to help provide bridge financing, technical expertise. What are all of the things we need to do so that it's not 480 units there and 112 units here and 57 there? It is literally we're trying to master plan and develop uh, 10,000 units. Now, it's going to be hard because it's not just city of San Diego and county of San Diego. We need the other incorporated cities. We need our school districts and our other governing bodies to all be a part. Uh, but people expect us to work together and they expect us to, to try and figure out how to get it done. They don't care who their representative is or technically whose responsibility it is. They just know housing costs too much and they want us to deal with it. And that's that's what we're, what we're focused on doing. 
You mentioned cities outside of the city of San Diego. Now, I imagine some of the land that the county owns is in jurisdictions where either the leaders or the residents are perhaps not as enthusiastic as the city of San Diego about increasing density and building affordable housing. Supervisor, if the county faces resistance to some of these projects from the local community or the local government, will it go ahead and build the housing anyway? Look, we can't let opposition. I mean, you know, this is the most frustrating thing, whether you're talking about homelessness, you know, everyone wants you to deal with homelessness until it actually comes to dealing with it. And then folks say, well, not here, go deal with it somewhere else. Uh, and the same is true for, for housing. And, and you know, I get it's got to be done right. And you got to do it in the right way. And, and, and you got to work through through all of that. Uh, but at the end of the day, we, we've got to get past this militant can't do it. It's literally like folks are saying there's a leak in your side of the boat. Go fix it somewhere else. No, we're all in the boat and we got to all have skin in the game. And, you know, Council President Ewell Rivera and I sat through hour and a half of getting yelled at by folks in our overlapping jurisdictions because of, of affordable housing projects, permanent supportive housing. And we are moving forward with that project. We're not going to be deterred. And so I think we've, we've got to summon the will uh, and, and show the leadership to be willing to, to lean into some of these challenges and fights uh, to try and make a difference. We had one just with the city of El Cajon. Uh, you know, their actions were to create more homeless. And we're just we can't stand for that. We, we've got to move forward. Council President, you've taken an interest in expanding tenant protections in San Diego. What do you want to see change in that realm? And where do tenant protections fit into this larger goal of ensuring that everyone has a safe, affordable place to live? Tenant protections are an important piece of the puzzle when it comes to um, preventing displacement and preventing homelessness. We know that right now, with the rental market being what it is, someone who is evicted from their home and injected into that market could very well find themselves in a situation where they can't afford to stay in San Diego or potentially can't afford to find a new home. We know that evictions lead to homelessness um, and certainly uh, accelerate displacement from our communities. So it's part of the overarching, you know, overarching umbrella of, of different policies that need to be put in place to provide housing security for, for San Diegans. So we are working on that, Andrew, uh, on updating tenant protections. There's a lot of urgency to, to do that because um, we've got a lot of folks who, um, for very good reason, are very, very concerned right now that um, if they get an eviction notice, they're not going to be able to come up with the $3,500 a month that it'll cost to find a two-bedroom apartment in, in San Diego right now. Um, and, and we need to, to do what we can to avoid that. You know, Obviously, that is also related to this this production issue, these things go hand in hand. Um, the more homes we have, um, the, 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 the less pressure on the market overall and the less vulnerable folks are uh, to kind of being preyed upon in a, in a really, really tough housing market. San Diego has done a lot to streamline approval of housing projects, increase density, increase height limits so that affordable housing can be built legally in more places. But it still needs the money to actually build that housing. Can we achieve this goal of 10,000 units in the next eight years without raising taxes? Andrew, I believe we can. Uh, I, I'd point you to the example of, of county doing it, of MTS doing it. Um, you know, one of the biggest costs to build affordable housing is the cost to acquire the land. But if the public already owns the land and you don't have to make a profit on the land, then you have the ability to make these projects pencil out and work and the ability to get them done quicker. Uh, so I, I absolutely believe we can. Uh, it, takes a, it takes a will. Uh, it takes a lot of work. It takes people doing things that they've never done before. 
Uh, but but if you're not doing things you've never done before, then you're not going to get an outcome different than before either. And so, I, you know, I think that's the, the key point that we're driving here is identifying this is our highest priority as a region. Uh, and these are the steps you can take. And then for folks that have never thought about it, being there to provide some assistance, uh, some mentorship, some help uh, in, in, in kind of showing them the way. Yeah. And the, the only thing I would add to that, Andrew, is, you know, as you know, there's a lot of levers to pull when it comes to making housing more, more affordable for, for the folks who are going to live in those homes. And one of the ways is through, through subsidizing that housing, right? And uh, that can at times require additional revenue, but that's not what we're doing here. We're reducing costs. We're reducing costs by, as, as Chair Fletcher said, you know, kind of pulling out the, the, the cost of land, which is incredibly expensive here in San Diego. And then there's other ways that we can reduce costs as well by streamlining uh, permitting processes, by making it easier uh, to, to, to build, to make, to, by creating more certainty for those folks who want to build homes. So there's a, a number of ways that we can reduce costs. We have to wrestle uh, as a region and as a state with the reality that building housing in the state of California and in the region of San Diego is way, way too expensive. And then we, we can't subsidize our, our way out of this. We are also going to have to reduce costs. And I think that what the county and the city are, are, are going to be talking about on Monday, what we've been doing at MTS is a very effective way of reducing that cost and hopefully can provide a model for other cities throughout the region. There was a ballot measure in 2020 that would have raised property taxes in the city of San Diego to fund more affordable housing. It got a majority, but not the two-thirds majority that it needed to pass. Does either of you hope or expect another housing bond measure to appear on the ballot in 2024? Well, I'm always willing to look at, at what we can do um, and, and certainly wouldn't take anything off the table. But we have the ability now. We've demonstrated that this is a, a viable path that we can do with the resources we have. And so, you know, we'll always look at what opportunities arise down the road, but that should not stop us from taking action today for something that we know can work. Uh, and that's what we're really trying to drive. We've seen a model where it works. We've demonstrated this is doable. Now we just got to get more folks doing it and we got to do it at scale. We also have the tremendous support of the philanthropic community who's stepping up in a big way, in a significant way to say, hey, we're going to be part of this. We're going to come with some skin in the game uh, and we're going to help help join in this effort. And so we can always look to the future for other ideas or other opportunities, but we got to look to the present for what we need to be doing right now. Building new affordable housing is one challenge, but there's also a challenge in preserving the affordable housing that we have today. Many of these deed restrictions that keep rents below the market rate are expiring, and and that could mean that tenants could face big rent increases. What role does affordable housing preservation uh, play in this larger goal of these 10,000 units? To me, it's I would say that that's an and on top of what we, we want to build, right? So we need we we don't want to be is in a situation where you know, we, we build 10,000 and then, you know, we lose 5,000 uh, simultaneously, right? So, you know, I, I, I think that the, the preservation is a thing that we have to stack on top of production. Um, it's, it is incredibly important, especially when it comes to avoiding displacement. And I, I want to make sure that folks are clear about what I mean when I, when I refer to displacement. This is, you know, preventing people who've committed their lives, uh, decades uh, of their lives, to improving their communities, to being important parts of their community, and then are forced out of that neighborhood that they've invested time and energy and put love into, 
know, because they can't afford it anymore. And we have a way to stop that by preserving our affordable housing stock. And we, we need to invest in that preservation. Um, one, to make sure that we are you know, not um, accelerating the, the, the housing cost crisis. And two, to provide folks the, the, the dignity of being able to know that the blood, sweat, and tears that they've invested in their community um, is not going to be lost um, simply by way of market forces. I've been speaking with County Supervisor Nathan Fletcher and San Diego City Council President Sean Ela Rivera. They'll both be chairing a joint meeting of the City Council and the Board of Supervisors on Monday. And thank you both for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you, Andrew. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Andrew Bowen. Maureen Kavanaugh is off. Emergency COVID-19 tenant protections are set to end tomorrow in the city of San Diego. KPBS reporter Jacob Ayer says some San Diego renters are worried their housing situations could be in jeopardy. Rahuma Abdi is a mother of six who rents an apartment in City Heights. She's lived there for decades and says she loves the community of fellow immigrants refugees. Yeah, so I grew up in City Heights as well and when my family was renting it looks like community, it looks like a farm where like all families stay together. But now she's worried more of her friends and neighbors will be forced to move as emergency COVID-19 tenant protections are set to phase out on September 30th. But now because of City Heights it's getting expensive because of the lack of protection that we have everybody's like spreading out and moving out and being displaced. Rahuma works at Partnership for the Advancement of New Americans, or PANA. Asma Abdi is PANA's policy associate. She says she wants an extension of tenant protections and is urging the San Diego City Council to take action. It means that many families, even if they do absolutely everything right, they pay their rent on time, they don't violate their lease agreement, they can still be at risk for eviction. And so it creates a lot of uncertainty in our community um, and people don't know whether or not they'll remain in their homes. Once the no-fault protections expire, the city will be left with its tenants' right-to-know ordinance. It requires landlords to provide at least one of nine listed reasons before terminating a lease with a renter who has lived at a property for more than two years. San Diego City Council President Shawnee Lo Rivera says he submitted a potential set of updates for the tenant protection ordinance to the city attorney's office. Any protection that goes away that makes it easier for folks to be um, evicted and put out into the rental market um, is one that creates added vulnerability, and that concerns me. We are hoping that the Tenant Protections Ordinance will provide stronger protections for our low-income, elderly, disabled, and terminally ill tenants, some of our most vulnerable community members, um, and allow them the right to relocation payments in the event that they are evicted. Current state law, with some exceptions, limits rent increases at 10%. While that sounds like a lot, Lucinda Lilly of the Southern California Rental Housing Association says landlords have also faced difficult circumstances over the past few years. When we couldn't terminate a tenancy even if there was an extremely bad actor on a property. So rental housing providers have really risen to this. Lilly wants solutions for struggling renters 
but stands against any form of extending the protections. This isn't going to result in an avalanche of people getting termination notices for no reason. Um, just cause is just cause. And if a renter, if an owner needs to move into a property, then they need to move into a property. If they need to sell because they can no longer afford to support the property, then they need to be able to do that. While time is of the essence for many renters, it could be a while before any form of the TPO can be enacted. With the rising cost of overall living, that's pushing many tenants over the edge. I'm likely I have four bedrooms, but some other families who cannot afford to rent four, like four bedrooms. That's why there's a lot of hidden homelessness in our community where like families are doubling up in one bedroom, two bedroom because of they cannot afford to rent. Pana says the updated ordinance would close loopholes that landlords can use to wrongfully evict families. It would also require landlords to provide relocation assistance to tenants who face no-fault evictions. Jacob Ayer, KPBS News. Gas prices are again rising in San Diego, up 15 cents this week to an average of 6.20 a gallon. And for people who are struggling to put food on the table, every cent counts. A new report from the San Diego Hunger Coalition finds nearly 40% of Black and Latino San Diegans are experiencing food insecurity. Joining me now to talk about this is Hunger Coalition President and CEO Anahid Braki. Welcome to you. Thank you, Jade. I'm really happy to be here. Thank you. Anahid, the, the number I just gave, nearly 40% of Black and Latino San Diegans are experiencing food insecurity. That is staggering. Tell me what the Hunger Coalition found out about the impact of hunger in these communities. Well, what we know is that, you know, I mean, what this data shows is that hunger and, and nutrition insecurity is a hidden crisis here in San Diego County. Uh, San Diego households have been pummeled um, over the past few years with one economic hit after another. And on top of about 30% of, of San Diegans earning less than $30,000 a year, these were households that were already in a precarious financial position. Mm. And I think it would also be good to understand how you are defining the term nutrition insecurity. What does it mean? So the San Diego Hunger Coalition and other leaders from across the sector started an initiative in 2016 called Hunger Free San Diego. And our goal is to make sure that everyone in the county has enough to eat and that anyone who needs food assistance can get it. We aren't satisfied with just providing enough calories. We are setting a standard for nutrition security for the region. And that means that everyone should have access to three healthy meals a day, whether they can afford it or not. I mean, this report shows who's most affected by food insecurity in the region down to the zip code. Uh, what are some takeaways from that information? When you look at where there are allocations of poverty around the county, um, you know, that is where we see a lot of food insecurity. And these different clusters, you know, it's not an accident. It's actually the result of decades of exclusionary policies that have resulted in this kind of um, structure that is essentially racist in its origin. Um, you know, that may not be the way that people see it today, but, you know, decades and decades of unequal access to land, unequal access to wealth, 
grocery stores going into higher um, income communities and not going into lower income communities. Like this has been decades in the making. Um, and the good news is we are getting a lot smarter as a community and as a nonprofit sector and government agencies. And we're looking at this as a problem that can be solved. Using data, using collaboration, we, we can see the, the path in front of us. And I think that with the White House's new strategy on nutrition and, and health, we've got the support at the federal level to make some really big, broad, sweeping changes. And where specifically are some of these clusters in San Diego? There are um, big clusters up in North County, Escondido, El Cajon, and down um, in the San Ysidro area. One of the things that our maps don't show is the level of need in the rural communities. We produce different maps at a, at a finer scale, you know, because the rural community is, is not as dense. And so it doesn't show as dark, but that doesn't mean that there aren't, isn't tremendous need among the households that are out there as well. And, you know, when we're talking about low-income San Diegans, we're talking about people who consider themselves middle class, too. Is that right? This is one of the things um, that we're really going to have to change in our national dialogue. When you look up the definition of middle class, it spans from $40,000 a year to about $160,000 a year. Um, Having grown up in a family that was on the very lower end of that, and then gone to a college that was, you know, an Ivy League sort of ish school and to see other households who call themselves middle class and, and just the wide, vast difference in opportunity. What that does to people who are on the lower side of the middle class range is it makes you feel like there's something wrong with you if you can't make it. You know, you're supposed to be middle class. What the heck is happening? You're working full time. Maybe you have two full time jobs in your household, but somehow you're still struggling. And I think the You know, there's a lot of rhetoric at the national level when we talk about SNAP and talking about how people um, don't want to work. And that couldn't be further from the truth. Nobody wants to be on welfare. Nobody wants to be on food stamps. But it is a means to an end. And it is a, a support that we need to make more readily available so that our community members can thrive and our kids don't don't fall behind. And how are food banks and programs like SNAP filling in the gaps? Feeding San Diego, the San Diego Food Bank, which operates the North County Food Bank, these organizations understand that charitable food is not going to end hunger. And that is why both organizations do a lot of CalFresh application assistance. And so I think, you know, the hunger relief providers know that this is a puzzle that we need to put together using data as a guide, um, maximize all of our resources. We could be enrolling at least another 100,000 people into the SNAP or CalFresh program. That would ease the burden on food banks. Um, And so I think, too, you know, when we look at some of this pandemic aid ending in um, early 2023, You know, we're all bracing for a spike in need. And the more that we can support CalFresh application assistance at the community-based level, the more that we can support school districts and expanding their meal programs and reaching more kids, then we can be more strategic about those charitable pounds of food um, and use them more strategically to fill gaps. 
And you've touched on this, but you know, we've been talking about a broken system and the work that is being done to repair it in the long term. But what about the people who are struggling now? What are some ways they can be helped in the short term? I think the one of the one of the things that the Hunger Coalition developed during the pandemic is a hunger-free navigator training. It's a 90-minute training. We provide it online. And it is for people who are seeking food assistance to understand all of the programs out there and what they're eligible for. And it's for people who want to help. And so we've got our hunger-free navigator training program, and we also have food assistance resource flyers. Now we put these flyers together in partnership with all of the agencies to make sure that we've got the latest information about how to find food assistance in your community. They are on our website, sdhunger.org, and they're available in 15 different languages. And so we really, you know, it can be really daunting, especially if you've never experienced um, food insecurity before, you know, and, and maybe you're ashamed to even admit it, you know, I mean, who wants to, to share that, you know, it's, it's a, it's a point of um, pride for a lot of people, but there are ways that you can do this in a very um, private way, get, get assistance. You can call 211 San Diego, just dial 211. They can help you with an application over the phone. Um, The food banks, you can call the food banks. They can help you with an application over the phone. You never actually have to even go into a County office. I've been speaking with San Diego Hunger Coalition President and CEO Anahid Baraki. And Anahid, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Jade. Much appreciated. The California Department of Education has not yet released its statewide school test results from the spring. Results from this spring's Smarter Balanced tests normally are released by early fall, but the department says it needs additional time to incorporate the results into a new dashboard it's creating. But it's an election year, and some suspect politics may be the main reason for the delay. That's the argument made in a new column in Cal Matters by my guest Dan Walters. Dan, welcome to Midday Edition. No, thank you very much. Why is the release of the statewide testing data important? What does this data tell us? Well, I think it's particularly important this year because this is the first set of tests really after the pandemic. And it's a way to judge something that's very, very important in, in the educational uh, circles. And that is what effect did the pandemic and all the school closures have on the academic achievement of California's 6 million uh, students? Uh, and, you know, the annual things are interesting, but this is kind of critical. This is a very important thing. It's a very important debate that's gone on as to what extent uh, the learning of students was retarded by the fact that they had to go to Zoom school rather than being re- at real school. What is the California Department of Education saying about why they haven't released these results yet? Well, they've now decided to release them in October. But before that, they were saying that they needed, they wanted to put these results into what they call a dashboard. The dashboard was created uh, a few years ago to supposedly give parents and voters uh, and the general public a, a real quick glance at how well their particular schools and their particular school districts are doing. And it included test scores, but it had other factors that were included in the dashboard. 
this was very controversial at the time it was created because it was widely seen among educational reformers as a way of kind of downplaying the importance of academic learning and by just making it one factor among many in this so-called dashboard. And of course, with the uh, pandemic having had some effect on school for learning, it would even be more, I guess, kind of obscuring the import of what these tests, the, the late 2022 tests show. Your column makes it clear you don't buy the Department of Education's explanation for delaying the release of these test results. Why not? Well, they obviously have the test results because they've given them to the individual school districts throughout the state and are actually telling the school districts they can release the information on their own districts, but they wouldn't release the, the statewide data saying they needed to wait and put it in this dashboard. My, my contention was the data is there. It's been released already. Put it out there. You can always put it in the dashboard later. So they decided to release it in October. It's before the election day, but it's uh, it's be released apparently while the voting is still going on during in October. You mentioned that many local school districts have released their data from these tests. What have we learned from those data? Well, I think we learned most from what happened in Los Angeles Unified. Los Angeles Unified is the nation or the state's largest school district and the second largest school district in the country. I mean, it has four or five hundred thousand students. And the results that were released uh, with about a week or so ago at LA Unified were devastating. They showed tremendous loss of learning during the pandemic. Uh, and the superintendent of Los Angeles schools said it basically wiped out five years of gains that the, the district had seen before that. And this is particularly important because the biggest losses the most devastating uh, effects are on children who are either English learners or from poor families, which, by the way, is about 60% of California's school children fall into those categories, English learner or from poor families. They have been historically behind their more privileged uh, contemporaries in terms of academic learning. And that's been acknowledged multiple times. It's called the achievement gap. And it looks like the pandemic closures widened that gap even more. Although all school children in LA Unified took a tumble, so to speak, the, the tumble was worse among the, those at-risk children. And that's making, that makes a lot of sense because those are the people, those are the kids who would not have access to internet and tutors and all the stuff that more affluent families can offer their children. So it's not surprising that that gap widened during the pandemic. There were national school test results that were released earlier this year, and they showed big declines in reading and math scores. What do you think needs to happen to help get students back on track in the wake of these pandemic-era declines that we've seen? Nobody knows the answer to that. And that's a subject of great debate. It's been debating California now for more than a decade, I know at least. Remember back during Jerry Brown's governorship about a decade ago, they actually overhauled school financing in California to give more money to uh, schools and school districts that have large numbers of these at-risk children trying to close the achievement gap. Well, it hasn't closed, and uh, and now it's probably even widened even for So is money the answer to the question? Uh, a lot of educators think, yes, you need more money. But maybe there's something else going on here. I, I am struck by the fact, 
and have written about on a number of occasions, that there are school districts in California with large numbers of poor and non-English speaking or English learner students who do a very good job of educating, who whose test scores are right up there where they should be. So I said, I said in, in print many times that why aren't we replicating what those school districts are doing? Why are we assuming that just throwing more money at the problem is going to be a, be the answer? Because in these school districts, it's not it's not only more money, but it's how you spend the money. If you just simply use that money to raise everybody's salaries, that doesn't do it. If you use that money for true enrichment for the kids who are mostly at risk, it seems to be paying off in some school districts which are doing that. So maybe we ought to be looking at how they're spending the money, not just getting more money. I've been speaking with Dan Walters, columnist with Cal Matters. And Dan, thanks for joining us. You're very welcome. KPBS On Demand is supported by the San Diego County Toyota dealers, whose commitment to customers extends to giving back to the community and who are proud to support the City of San Diego lifeguards with their important role of keeping our beaches safe. Toyota, let's go places. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Andrew Bowen. Maureen Kavanaugh is off. This past weekend, California's Reparations Task Force focused part of the hearings on the Japanese-American redress movement, which was galvanized during the civil rights movement of the 1960s. Out of that movement for redress, Japanese-Americans who were forcibly removed and confined in internment camps during World War II obtained reparations. So what can be learned from the Japanese-American movement for redress? Here to talk about that is Mitch Mackay, an expert on the Japanese-American redress movement who has written several books and is the president and CEO of Go For Broke National Education Center. Mitch, thank you so much for joining us. Jade, thank you for having me. So during the reparations task force hearings over the weekend, you gave testimony and started off by talking about the importance of speaking with a unified voice when it comes to this process. What do you mean by that? Well, Jade, first of all, let me start off by saying that no reasonable person uh, makes any claim of equivalency between what happened to Japanese Americans for four years of imprisonment versus the 250 years of slavery that African-Americans had to endure, and then the 90 years of discriminatory laws. Uh, So there really is no claim of equivalency. But I think there are some insights that we might be able to gain from the Japanese-American redress movement and the Japanese-American community's fight for recognition and atonement for what happened. During the redress movement for Japanese-Americans, it started off by there being great dissension and differing opinions as to what the Japanese-American community should demand. There was one group that said, let it go. A second group said, no, what was done to us was wrong, and we're demanding a good, authentic apology. And the final group said, no, what was done to us was wrong, and we are deserving of a good, authentic apology. But there were monetary losses, there were real harms, and those need to be addressed with monetary payments. And the 60s and 70s and the beginning of the 1980s was the time when the Japanese American community had to struggle with that to finally come to a place where the vast majority of the community agreed on that third perspective. And once we came to that point, it was a lot easier to push the movement forward and to push the demand forward. 
how important was the education of the public and even legislators about the details of Japanese internment camps to the movement? In the 1970s and the 1980s, it was critical because the reality is that most of America, uh, mainstream America and non-Japanese American America knew very little about the camps and in particular, the American Congress. And another unintended consequence of our commission hearings was that Japanese Americans got to hear this, these stories oftentimes for the first time. So the commission hearings, which took place in the early 1980s, was a way of educating the American public as well as the Japanese American community on a deeper level as to what exactly happened. And do you see education about the harms of chattel slavery and systemic racism being important to the redress for African Americans? You know, most Americans don't appreciate just the horrific nature and the horrific moral stain that uh, slavery created for our nation and the aftermath and the ongoing ramifications of slavery since that time. I know that there are others in the community who say, you know, we know enough and we know that a harm was done. Let's get straight to the point and start talking about reparations, right? And I think part of the answer to your question would be, how are we going to obtain reparations? Are we going to obtain reparations through the courts or are we going to obtain reparations through the Congress? And certainly, if it's going to be through the Congress, then there's a lot of work that has to be done in changing the minds of our elected officials who are currently there. And in going that route, when you see books being banned from schools and libraries and curriculum that teaches Black history uh, in particular being banned from some school districts across the country, what do you think is motivating that effort to suppress history? And how difficult do you think that will be to overcome in terms of educating the public? What I can say is that when I hear about the banning of books and based on the, the reasons that are coming out of these school districts from across the nation, it simply makes me sad. You know, as, as a former educator myself, as someone who's valued uh, the search for truth in our nation's history, I don't, you know, it, banning books is just antithetical to everything that I've grown up and believed in and based my career on. In your testimony, you also talked about the objective for the Japanese-American fight for redress. What was the process for coming up with a unified objective? There was a great amount of organizing and outreach to the Japanese-American community and to our allies. In Japanese culture, there's the term shikata ganai, which means it can't be helped. And it's a fatalistic, most people think it's a fatalistic term, but really it's a term that talks about there are some things in life that you can't change, so you learn to adapt or go around it. We had to change that perspective that what happened to us during World War II was something that was shikata ganai, something that couldn't be helped, to something that we could do something about. We had to change the mindset from viewing the incarceration during World War II from being a social misfortune to viewing it as a political injustice. You know, also, how was eligibility for reparations decided during the Japanese-American fight for redress? And do you see this being an area of difficulty for African-Americans? 
One of the major differences between uh, the African-American reparations movement and the Japanese-American redress movement, of course, is that during the time that the Japanese-American redress movement happened, many of the victims were still alive. And that, of course, is not the case for slavery, where there are no slaves that are currently alive. So being able to identify and say those who were affected by Executive Order 9066 would be eligible. But here's the, the kicker, if you will. You had to be alive on August 10th, 1988, when President Reagan signed the Civil Liberties Act. And there were basically two reasons why this was built into the bill. One is that they thought half the people had died already, so that it would be a big money saver, and you, wouldn't, you, you could save about a billion dollars by only paying those that were alive. But there was a more sinister reason, in, in my view, and that was it prevented setting a precedent, a precedent of paying reparations to individuals who are no longer alive. And of course, what they had in mind, the forces that demanded that part be put in the bill, were African-American slaves. That's very interesting. Do you see a way to overcome that? Well, you know, as such, the, the Civil Liberties Act of 1988 does not serve as a legislative precedent for African-American reparations, but it does serve as a moral precedent. You know, and I think that's what where I think we can take away some of the lessons from the Japanese-American redress movement is our nation apologized for a wrong that it had committed. And, and, and that's the core of the Japanese-American redress story. I think we have to take that same lesson and apply it to the issue of slavery. How does our nation atone for this moral injustice that lasted not four years, but 250 years, along with the discrimination that continued afterwards? I mean, it is a difference of, of tremendous magnitude but it doesn't absolve our nation from being accountable for this moral stain. And why is it important for you to ally yourself in the African-American fight for redress? Because it's the right thing to do. We as Americans, each and every one of us, regardless of our skin color, regardless of when our families came to America, we all benefit from the riches that slavery brought to our, our nation. We live in the richest country on the face of the earth, and those riches were derived from this moral stain on our, our, our nation. And we all, in doing so, have a responsibility to address that. Many African-Americans were allies to Japanese-Americans during the redress movement, you know, and people like Mervyn Dimely and Ron Dellums in the Congress were, were just real champions for us. And, and, and I don't mean this in a transactional way, but you stand with your friends, you know, people who have been with you in the past. It's our turn now to, to be with the African-American community. I've been speaking with Mitch Mackay, president and CEO of Go For Broke National Education Center and lead author of the award-winning book, Achieving the Impossible Dream. How Japanese Americans Obtained Redress. Mitch, thank you very much for your insight in joining us today. Jay, thank you for the work that you do.
KPBS On Demand is supported by MaraCal Design and Remodeling, helping homeowners with their home remodeling needs. From ADUs to custom kitchen remodels and room additions, MaraCal Design and Remodeling designs and builds your dream home. Learn more at trustyourhometous.com.